For those of you that have not been with us, we are currently going through Mark's gospel verse by verse. And this morning we find ourselves in verses 32 and 34 of Mark 10. So if you will take your Bibles and turn there. And this morning I've entitled my discourse to you, Christ's Ministry of Prophetic Preparation. As we watch our country collapse under the weight of its own depravity, it's important for we as Christians to have a biblical worldview. We are told in 1 John 5, 19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we see that manifested every single day. We see his nefarious deceptions being implemented primarily through theological and political liberalism that has brought on a very virulent stream of cultural Marxism. In fact, the woke cult is now the official religion of our culture and we are all supposed to bow to it. Its demonic priests are among the most immoral and ungodly in our country, including transgenders and drag queens that are nothing more than painted up pedophile perverts trying to seduce our children. And many apostate churches have embraced this insanity. Our responsibility in light of all this is to have a biblical worldview and live it out. And at the very heart of that, we must not only understand the gospel, but we must proclaim it in all of its power, with all of its clarity, and even with its offense. Moreover, we must live the gospel. And my responsibility before the Lord is to make sure I am equipping you to do just that, to make sure you have a biblical worldview. And our text this morning, along with a number of associated passages, will help us see the big picture of God's kingdom purposes. It's easy to come to a passage like we're going to look at and just kind of read it and grasp some great truths that emerge from it and not see how it fits into not only the immediate historical context, but into the overall context of God's redemptive purposes. In our violent world of deception and perversion and corruption, the truth concerning what God has done, is doing, and will do is certainly a treasure of inestimable worth. In fact, the eternal destiny of men's souls depends upon it. And what we are going to see is that our God reigns in absolute sovereignty, and we can rest assured that he will accomplish his good purposes in his time. With that, let me read our text, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. 
They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, I wish to explain this passage under two headings that I hope will be helpful to you. The first heading is we want to look at the historical and theological context of Jesus' prophecy in this particular passage. And secondly, we want to look at the specifics and fulfillments of Jesus' prophecy. So let me begin, first of all, giving you the big picture of the historical and theological context of what Jesus is saying. There is a historical flow to the biblical storyline as we see it unfold throughout scripture and throughout history. It can be divided into four categories. We see that there is a creation, then there is a fall, there's redemption, and there's restoration. At creation, God made a magnificent and a perfect universe. At the fall, Satan deceived his image bearers and they sinned. And as a result, God cursed them and all creation and death enters into the world. Through redemption, God implements a plan through his promises and through his covenants whereby he will restore his creation through the person and the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final big category is one of restoration that we all are longing for. This plan includes the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites as a means of blessing to all of the nations. They would become the vessels through whom the Savior, the King, the Messiah would eventually come. He would be the rightful descendant of Abraham and David, thus fulfilling the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. And Jesus came as a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, predicting a Messiah that would come and would one day rule over a worldwide kingdom. As we read, for example, in Zechariah 14 and verse 9, when the Lord will be king over all the earth. But he would also suffer for the sins of the people, as we have read in Isaiah 53 earlier. And as we look at the big picture, we see that these purposes will be accomplished through two distinct arrivals, two comings, a truth not clearly revealed in the Old Testament, but made abundantly clear in the New Testament. Scripture reveals that his suffering for sin on the cross was fulfilled in his 
first coming, consistent with Old Testament prophecy. But the Old Testament prophets concerning his worldwide reign have yet to occur. For example, the prophecies related to the pre-kingdom judgments of Daniel's 70th week, as we would read in Daniel 9:27, the day of the Lord, the salvation and restoration of Israel, the reign and the defeat of the Antichrist, the, the millennial kingdom. All of these events are awaiting a second coming. And we can anticipate a literal fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Jesus made this abundantly clear in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a reference to the Hebrew scriptures as a whole, including all of its prophecies. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus illustrated a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in his prophetic discourse, for example, in Matthew 24 and 25. To give you one example, in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, Jesus declared, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, now catch this, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, When you see that standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and so on. And we also know that Jesus' prophecy in the text that we have before us concerning his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, his death and resurrection were all fulfilled literally. And it's fascinating that all of these details and many more were promised, were prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, Luke records Jesus speaking to his disciples in Luke 18, 31 about, quote, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man that would be accomplished. And for this reason, I am committed to the consistent use of a grammatical, historical hermeneutic the principle of interpretation in all areas of scripture, including the prophetic sections. I'm only concerned with the original authorial intent of every passage. I'm only concerned with what the original readers would have understood through the normal meaning of language. And I might add, by doing this, it avoids the the theological confusion especially in the realm of eschatology, where many Christians look for hidden or allegorical meanings in the prophetic literature. Spiritualizing the prophetic literature has led to the errant belief, for example, that the church is the new Israel. That despite all of God's promises to the contrary, he has permanently disenfranchised his covenant people Israel from his redemptive program, and he has replaced them with his church. 
that somehow all of the material and physical blessings of the kingdom promises that he made to Old Testament Israel are really nothing more than spiritual blessings that belong to the church. And I believe that these claims run contrary to the irrevocable nature of divine election. For example, in Romans 11 and verse one, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. He goes on to say in verse 25, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then he says in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. All of this is important for us to understand as we approach Jesus' prophecy here in Mark 10, especially as it relates to the chronology of Jesus' ministry. And I hope you will bear with me here. Sometimes as I put together my thoughts for these sermons, I get finished and think, oh my goodness, they're gonna be so lost with all of this. Lord, only you can illumine them and help them to endure this. But dear friends, I believe that this is very important. You may not understand it all now. You may have to go back and listen to it, but this is absolutely foundational to a biblical worldview. Now, the immediate context, the chronological flow of these historical narratives that we've been studying in the Gospels can can easily get lost when you just study one gospel at a time. For example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the subsequent decision of the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. And how after that, Jesus and his disciples took refuge for a few quiet weeks in a small village of Ephraim awaiting the time when, quote, all things should be fulfilled. Yet you need to understand that this took place before the text before us, before what Jesus prophesied, and this is really important. You see, no one knew where Jesus was after the raising of Lazarus, although everyone was looking for him. And the question that was on everyone's mind is recorded in John 11, verses 55 and six. Do you think this Jesus of Nazareth will have the courage to come up to the feast? Referring to the feast of Passover. Now, during the Passover season, great throngs of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, would leave the northern region of Israel, the region of Galilee, and travel south down to the east side of the Jordan River in the region of Perea. They would do this to avoid Samaria. They would not set foot in Samaria. But Jesus was in Ephraim on the southern boundary of Samaria. So 
As Passover grew near, what we see is Jesus and his disciples leave the village of Ephraim and travel north through Samaria. They could have just gone south just a little ways to Jerusalem, but instead they go north through Samaria because there's no Jews there. Therefore, he could avoid arrest. And he goes to the south edge of the Galilee as we read in Luke 17 and verse 11. And then he crosses over the Jordan Rift, the little town basically of Pella. They cross over and he joins one of the large pilgrim bands going south through Perea. Eventually then they will go south and they will turn back west, they will cross the Jordan River at Jericho. A number of you have been with me, we've been on this trail before, and they will start to make about a 20 mile climb of 3,500 feet up to Jerusalem. Now we know that Jesus and the disciples then stop at the village of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And the ecstatic pilgrims continue on to find lodging. And there's many things that they heard and saw, miracles that Jesus did during that journey, many parables that he spoke. But they're gonna go on into Jerusalem where they are going to announce that the king is coming. And they're gonna describe the miracles that they saw, that they witnessed on the way. Now, it's also important for us to understand that Jesus is orchestrating all of this. He's moving it towards a high point, a climax on the day of his triumphal entry. By traveling with the Jewish pilgrims, by working these miracles, by rebuking the Pharisees during that journey, And then by stopping in Bethany and allowing the pilgrims to proceed on before him into Jerusalem, he really accomplished three objectives. The first objective that he accomplished is that somebody is going to spread the word that he is going to appear in Jerusalem. And secondly, he fueled the fires of messianic expectation that would pave the way for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then thirdly, he frustrated the murderous plans of the Sanhedrin, making them afraid to arrest him because of his enormous popularity. Albeit it was a superficial and self-serving popularity that would soon turn to rejection of their king and these same people would call for his crucifixion. His triumphal entry, you must understand, was a day of messianic presentation foretold by the Old Testament prophets, predicting the manner, the moment, and even the meaning of the king's presentation. In Zechariah 9 and verse 9, we have the prediction of the manner of the king's presentation. It's foretold. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Daniel 9, in verse 25, we even have the moment of the king's presentation being foretold. There we read, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. This is a reference to weeks of years. Without getting into all of the details, suffice it to say that this is speaking of 483 years after the Persian king Artaxerxes decreed to rebuild, uh, uh, to allow the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 BC. The first advent of Messiah would then be fulfilled at his triumphal entry that occurred on Nisan 9 AD 30, precisely as it was predicted. As a prophetic footnote, 69 weeks of those years have been fulfilled. There is one more seven year period yet to be fulfilled. It's known as Daniel's 70th week that corresponds with the pre-kingdom tribulation judgments just prior to our Lord's second coming. And Psalm 118, beginning in verse 21, even tells us of the meaning of the king's presentation. There we read, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. In Hebrew, this is Hosanna. Save now. He goes on to say, O oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Folks, please understand that all Jesus did on that final journey, all of his miracles, and certainly if you study his parables, all of these things point to the fact that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. The Messiah of Old Testament prophecy who had come to offer himself officially and finally as the king of the messianic kingdom in exact fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This was a genuine offer that Israel should have accepted you will recall in Luke 23, verse 3, Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, It is as you say. And later on, he will ask the crowd, as recorded in Mark 15, verse 12, What shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. Now, regarding Jesus' statements here in Mark 10, concerning his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, his death and resurrection. I find it very interesting that prior to this very clear statement, the gospel records only contain a few very indirect 
veiled allusions to his death and his resurrection. Mostly in John's gospel since he was the latest writer. For example, in John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A veiled reference to something that this Lamb is going to do, but it's not clear. In John 2.19, early in Jesus' ministry, when he's asked for a sign to demonstrate his divine authority, he answers, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In John 3, beginning in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Once again, a veiled, very unclear allusion to his death and resurrection that people really wouldn't pick up on. And then in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38, He spoke of the sign of Jonah the prophet who would be three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. And he adds, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But nowhere in the gospel records until later on does he speak clearly of his upcoming death and resurrection until, you might say this is the straw that broke the camel's back until the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, Matthew 12, verse 24, what is sometimes called the unpardonable sin. At that point, even after they witnessed all of his miracles, undeniable miracles, the Pharisees representing All Israel rejected the fullest possible revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And soon thereafter, in the gospel record, we read of Peter's confession in Matthew 16, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And at that point, Jesus announces the building of a new ecclesia which he called my church, Matthew 16, verse 15. And throughout this season of his ministry, Jesus will describe the mystery form which the kingdom will assume during the interregnum, if I can use a theological term that you don't hear much. An interregnum is an interval between two successive periods. It's a, a period when a kingdom does not have a leader. In this case, the interregnum will intervene between his death and his second coming, when the king of kings will come back and establish his kingdom on earth consistent with Old Testament prophecy. But it was only after the Pharisees' rejection and after Peter's confession that Jesus began to clearly describe his suffering and his death and his resurrection. For example, in Matthew 16, 21, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
It's interesting, he only speaks clearly on this matter on three occasions in the Synoptic Gospels. In our text in Matthew 10.33 and, and the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke is the last of these three occasions. Furthermore, both Mark and Luke state that he will, quote, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's Mark 8.31 and Luke 9.22. In fact, in Mark 8.32, Mark expresses how Jesus is now, quote, stating the matter plainly. Now there's no more ambiguity. And you will recall when he states the matter plainly, what does Peter do? Peter said, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, the question that stands before us is simply this, why would Jesus avoid stating these matters clearly in the early stages of his ministry? After all, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are absolutely central to the gospel and the history of the church. Moreover, if the church and the kingdom of heaven are essentially indistinguishable, one and the same, as some will argue. And if the kingdom and quote, the gospel of the kingdom, Mark 1.14, is merely a spiritual entity, as many claim, then why didn't Jesus and his disciples emphasize the cross from the outside of their ministry? Why would Jesus begin his public preaching recorded in Matthew 4:17 by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why didn't he say, repent for the kingdom of heaven it is, is at hand and it is a spiritual kingdom that I am going to offer you through my death and my burial and my resurrection. Why did he not do that? And the answer is this, dear friends, it's because Jesus first offered himself as the promised king of the messianic kingdom in exact fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You will remember originally the good news of the kingdom was announced only to Israel. John 1 and verse 11, he came to his own, referring to the people of Israel, and those who were his own did not receive him. In fact, prior to Israel's rejection, Jesus would not even allow his disciples to go into the region of the Gentiles and the Samaritans. But he said, go only, quote, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, and as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 10 and verses five and six. But the promised kingdom to Israel, God's chosen covenant people, demanded a decision. And we see this when we read the imperatives that Jesus uses in calling them to repentance. We read verbs like repent, believe, receive, confess, follow. Yet at every turn, despite all of his miraculous signs, they rejected him. Now, to be sure, Jesus' atoning work on the cross, as predicted in the Old Testament, was necessary for both cosmic and human 
reconciliation to occur. We know that Jesus, according to Acts 2.23, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We know according to Revelation 13 and verse eight that the lamb was slain prior to the foundation of the world. All of this was set into motion in eternity past. So Jesus' death was going to happen. It was not a plan B, as some would claim. But to emphasize his betrayal and his arrest and his phony trials and his crucifixion and death and resurrection at the outset of his messianic presentation would have been horribly confusing to them. They could not imagine a suffering and dying Messiah. Emil Schurer, a 19th century German Protestant theologian, wrote an elaborate four-volume history of the Jews around the time of Jesus' ministry. And I might add that all of you who are serious Bible students and want to be teachers, you absolutely must have this in your library and you must become familiar with it. It is absolutely fascinating and it will enlighten you as to how the people thought in those days. But in these volumes, especially in one volume, he provides a systematic statement of messianic doctrinal theology regarding the eschatological expectations of the Jewish people in the days of Jesus. In other words, this is how they thought, and I've summarized this very briefly. First of all, they believe the Messiah's appearance of redemption must be preceded by a special period of trouble and affliction, what he called the last tribulation and perplexity. Secondly, they believe that Elijah will return as the forerunner to prepare the way of the Messiah. Thirdly, they believed that Messiah will appear and overthrow the ungodly powers. Fourthly, after the appearing of the Messiah, the heathen powers will assemble against him for a last attack. Fifthly, Messiah will destroy those hostile powers by means of great judgment inflicted by God himself upon his adversaries. Then number six, they believed in the renovation of Jerusalem. Since the messianic kingdom is to be set up in the Holy Land, Jerusalem itself must be renovated. Number seven, the dispersed of Israel would share in the messianic kingdom and for this purpose return to Palestine. Number eight, they believe the messianic kingdom will have the messianic king at its head and that the Holy Land will form the central point of this kingdom. Number nine, they believed in a renovation of heaven and earth. And number 10, they believed in a general resurrection of the dead to take place before the last judgment. Now obviously any student of Bible prophecy knows that these things are consistent for the most part with Bible prophecy. But Schurer said this, quote, in not one of the numerous works discussed by us have we found even the slightest illusion to an atoning suffering of Messiah. That the Jews were far from entertaining such an idea is abundantly proved by the conduct of both the disciples and opponents of Jesus. He went on to say, accordingly, it may well be said that it was on the whole one quite foreign to Judaism in general. So the idea of a suffering and a dying Messiah was incomprehensible to these people. 
So from the outset of Jesus' ministry, the specifics of his atoning work on the cross were veiled. His priority was to offer himself as their Messiah and establish his kingdom. But this offer was conditioned upon national repentance as indicated in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Of course, there he's speaking of what would happen some 70 years later with the Romans. We also see the kingdom offer being conditioned upon national repentance even back in the Old Testament. If we look at Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 40, we read this. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land. But what we see in scripture is that God's sovereign plan for the kingdom to be inaugurated at Christ's first coming and await for his second coming was what God had in mind all along. As Matthew 23 and verse 38 and following says, behold, Jesus says, behold your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until, what a precious word, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some might say, how could Jesus genuinely offer kingdom blessings knowing that the people would reject it, knowing it would not be established until the second coming? I mean, how could he do that? Well, the answer is really twofold. First of all, the Old Testament message clearly states that Israel must repent and believe in the one who comes in the name of the Lord before God would remember his covenant. We see this in Matthew 23, verses 37 and following. Luke 13, verse 34 and following. But also, you must understand this theologically. Scripture clearly states for example, that God genuinely offers salvation to all people, even to those he knows are going to refuse to believe. And yet it is still a genuine offer. So his genuine offer of the kingdom to unrepentant and unbelieving Israel is no different. Others might say, well, what would have happened if Israel would have accepted her Messiah and believed in him? Would he have established his earthly kingdom at that point? 
Would he have been able to avoid the cross? Well, the answer is basically this. That is a hypothetical that ignores God's sovereign plan and his purposes in redemption and his purposes in building his kingdom. Alva J. McLean says this, quote, that is like asking what would have happened if Adam had not sinned. These are speculative questions, he goes on to say, to which the Christian interpreter need not attempt a final answer. It is our duty rather to hold fast the recorded facts of biblical history and the reality of man's responsibility within its process, to concede the irrevocable nature of predictive prophecy does not relieve man in any respect of his moral responsibility, for divine prophecy is not in itself the efficacious cause of human action, end quote. Now, it's also important to note that Christ is going to reassure his disciples that his impending death will not forfeit the kingdom, but only temporarily postpone it until he returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see this, for example, in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63, when the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In fact, during this final journey that Jesus made with the pilgrims, Jesus gave the parable of the pounds, you will recall in Luke 19, 11 and following. And that describes a nobleman, as you may recall, a nobleman that goes on a far journey to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And that parable would not only correct the disciples' misunderstanding that the kingdom would come immediately, because remember, I mean, even in the upper room, right around that time, what are are they fighting over? Who's going to be first in the kingdom? You know, they're thinking even with all that Jesus is saying, the kingdom's coming now. That parable refutes that, but it also makes it clear that there is going to be an interregnum. There's going to be an interval of delay followed by a future arrival. So there you have a very hurried historical and theological context of Jesus' prophecy that we have here in Mark 10. Let's look finally at the specifics and fulfillments of Jesus' prophecy. Notice verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Can't you see the scene? They know that Jesus is walking into a death trap. They're terrified. They don't know what's going to happen. The disciples are terrified. And Jesus is on up ahead of them in that steep 3,500-foot climb over 20 miles. He was resolute, was he not, in his determination to accomplish the will of his father. 
He was unflinchingly committed to finishing his atoning work on the cross to bear my sins, your sins in his body as our substitute. We read this in the Messiah's soliloquy about being perfected through his obedience and his suffering recorded by Isaiah the prophet some 800 years before. In Isaiah 50, beginning in verse five, we read this. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? And what's amazing is that these specifics recorded 800 years prior are the same specifics that Jesus gives here in Mark 10. Now notice them. Verse 32, and again he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And what we're going to see is that Jesus makes eight very specific predictions concerning his suffering, his death, and his resurrection in verses 33 and 34. A a real quick important digression just so you know. This is all setting up the Passion Week of Christ. On Sunday, Jesus is going to enter the city of Jerusalem on a colt and be welcomed as, as king. On Monday and Tuesday, he's going to enter the temple He is going to cleanse it, and for two days he is going to rule its precincts as the Messiah King, and he is going to answer the charges leveled against him, denounce the scribes and the Pharisees in a series of woes, and pronounce judgment on all who reject him. And then he will leave the temple. He will go up to the Mount of Olives, where he will answer the disciples' questions concerning his appearance, his coming, known as the Olivet Discourse. We read about it in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. And there he predicts as well the destruction of Jerusalem and his own second coming. And then on Wednesday, there's really nothing recorded, but we believe that he's probably in Bethany with the 12 worshiping and fellowshipping with Lazarus, preparing for the feast on the following day. And then on Thursday afternoon and evening, he will wash the disciples' feet. He will enjoy his last supper, Passover meal with his disciples. Judas will leave and go to betray him. And then on Friday morning, well before dawn, he will be betrayed, he will be arrested, and he will even be forsaken by the 11. He will suffer three mock trials by the Jews and the Sanhedrin. And sometime after dawn, he will be formally condemned. And then he will endure three more Roman interrogations. Pilate will then surrender to the demands of the Sanhedrin. Jesus will be scourged and executed by crucifixion. And then on Sunday, early in the day, he will rise from the dead. Now, 
the eight predictions. Number one, verse 33, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. This was fulfilled beginning with Judas' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 18, three, when the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And likewise, Mark records this in chapter 14, verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. The second prediction, and they will condemn him to death. This was fulfilled, for example, in Mark 14, 64. We read, you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. John 19, verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and he, referring to Pilate, said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. A third prediction, he will hand him and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Mark 15, verse one, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. The reason they had to do this is they did not have the authority to kill anyone. So they had to let the Romans decide that. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, it is as you say. And then the fourth and fifth prediction, they will mock him in verse 34 and spit on him. We see this fulfilled later in Mark 15, beginning in verse 17. They dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to acclaim him. Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. Number six, Jesus predicted that they will scourge me. Mark 15, verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Let me back up. Remember, the soldiers have put a, before this, he's, they've put a robe, purple robe on him, mocking his kingship. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They gave him a scepter to mock him as a king. And then they took the reed and they beat the thorns into his head, driving them deep into his skull. This beating combined with the previous beating that he received from the high priest rendered him at this point completely unrecognizable as a human being as predicted in Isaiah 52 verse 13 that we read earlier that his appearance was marred more than any man. And in this condition, Pilate brings Jesus out to the Jewish mob hoping that they would see this bloody form and be appeased, but they would not. According to Matthew's account, it would appear then that Jesus was scourged the second time with, with a severe verbertio, flogging it's called, verbertio, the worst kind. 
because Matthew indicates that Jesus was scourged after Barabbas was released. This kind of flogging was the most severe kind. Most men would not recover. In fact, it was one reserved for those that were about to be crucified. It was one that would literally rip the hide off of one's back right down to the rib cage. Most would bleed to death. It was designed to be so brutal that it would hasten the criminal's death. May I remind you, dear friends, that he endured the suffering that we deserved. The sixth prediction was that they would kill him. We know this happened. There was a cry of victory in John 19.30 when he said, it is finished. There was a cry of commitment in Luke 23.46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Mark 13, or Mark 15, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Then an eighth prediction, and three days later he will rise again. Mark 16, verse 6, we read that an angel said to the women that had come to the tomb, do not be amazed, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is substantiated by the biblical record of five appearances just on the day of his resurrection and then five more appearances during his subsequent 40-day ministry. And yet, dear friends, our Lord, our Savior, and our King marched forward to do all of this for us, a resolute determination to accomplish the will of the Father, to suffer and die on our behalf. My, what a model for us, amen? Would that we be so resolute in our commitment to do the Father's will. May I challenge you, if you're here today and you have never really understood the good news of the gospel, that God has provided a way for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be reconciled to a holy God through faith in a suffering Savior who is also our King. Today, you have been told. And I plead with you to repent, to place your faith in Him, the only hope of your salvation. And for those of us who know and love Christ, oh, how we need to rejoice with joy inexpressible as we think of all that God has done and is doing and will do, to know that God is saving and preparing in the ecclesia, the members of the royal family destined to rule with the king when he returns in all of his glory to establish his kingdom, an earthly kingdom that will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state, and to think that we are part of that nucleus of a future kingdom. May we all be diligent. May we be obedient to pray as Jesus has asked us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the magnificent truths of your word that give us a biblical worldview.
truly your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, especially in the dark days in which we live. We give you praise for all that you have decreed in eternity past, and we relax in your promises knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that you will accomplish your purposes to bring glory to yourself. What amazing truths. And for them we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.